Hi everyone from the shores of the Gulf of Mexico here in Clearwater, Florida. Welcome to another episode of On the Sports Clock. Uh, this episode is going to be awesome. I know I say that about all of them, but this one is very special for me personally. Uh, some of my greatest memories growing up a Cubs fan were running home after school from the bus and hearing this person along with his grandpa Harry and broadcast partner Steve Stone calling the Cubs games over on WGN. It is my pleasure to have on former WGN Cubs play-by-play -play broadcaster and current TV play-by-play -play broadcaster for the Atlanta Braves, Chip Carey. Chip, thank you so much for uh, carving out time to do this, and uh, I hope you're as excited about baseball season as I am. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Great to be with you, and absolutely, I think all of us who love the game can't wait for it to come back, be normal, and uh, play 162 and crown a champion just like we did for uh, oh so many years after the craziness of 2020. So yes, it's great to be back and great to be thinking about getting started next week. So now are you uh, talking about that? Are you there in Atlanta now? Are you gearing up for the gearing up for the season there? Are you still doing uh, like, are they going to be doing remote broadcasting this year? What's the situation looking like? Yeah, I'm actually in Atlanta. We did a couple of spring training games down in Florida, and then uh, uh, our executives decided to have us come up to Atlanta and broadcast two spring training games from a studio uh, before opening day. It's not ideal. It's not my favorite way of doing it, but it's still doing a game, which is fun. And talking baseball with Jeff Rancourt is always a lot of fun. And seeing this team as it gets put together and uh, um, you know, seeing what uh, – decisions that Brian Sinker and Alex Anthopoulos and the rest of the staff have to make. Uh, but we still have a couple of days uh, before regular season play. So I'll scoot home for a couple of days, uh, spend the last uh, precious few minutes with my family, and then come back to Atlanta in preparation for opening day on Thursday. Definitely. I'm uh, definitely looking forward to that. I've got uh, already planned out my baseball trips for this year. So hoping, hoping to get to Atlanta and see a game. I have not. That's one of the ballparks I've left to get to. So hopefully uh, I can make it up that way this year. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. They did a great job with uh, Truist Park. It used to be SunTrust Park. Very different experience than Turner Field. And uh, it's up in the Atlanta suburbs and still a lot to do. And they made it very fan-friendly. And obviously, with uh, what the Braves have done the last three years, it's been a rocking place. And with 33% uh, capacity to start the season, uh, hopefully that will ramp up very, very quickly as we build toward the All-Star Game here in Atlanta. People are excited about that. So, a lot of good things are happening with the Braves, the organization, and uh, uh, the team on the field. And uh, as I said, can't wait to get started for real on Thursday. I'm looking forward to talking more about that, too, uh, later in our podcast about what the team's looking like and, and um, how what, what you're going to, uh, you know, what, what the product on the field's going to be. I do want to ask, though, real quick before I forget, so I've always heard about Atlantic tra Atlanta traffic, excuse me. Um, and of course, having both of us lived in Chicago and, and visited New York, um, is there anything like Atlanta traffic or I guess what time should a fan leave for the ball game if they're staying like downtown and, and what's yeah. the traffic like? <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's something quite uh, similar to Atlanta traffic and it's the seventh canto of hell as, uh, as uh, Dante <laughs> described the inferno. Uh, yeah, traffic here's a, a mess. It's always going to be a mess. Uh, it's a gigantic city with a huge population and more and more people are coming here every day. Uh, if you stay downtown, uh, our, our advice is leave early. And that's the beauty of the battery and the, the facility around the ballpark itself. Uh, you don't have to come and just sit in a t and, and tailgate in a parking lot. There are bars and restaurants and shops and things to do around the ballpark, all with a Braves-type theme. So uh, the facility itself has become kind of a year-round destination kind of place. So uh, there's no harm in getting here early, beating the traffic. And once the game starts at 7 o'clock, uh, you don't really have to worry about traffic going home because it's very easy to get in and out of the place. So uh, it's not at all like Chicago. It's nothing at all like dealing with Turner Field with a 7 o'clock start and rush hour <laughs> traffic going both ways downtown. And, and New York uh, traffic is in a world of its own. But make no mistake. People here sort of gauge what they do and where they want to go based upon what they think traffic is going to be. And that can change in an instant. So uh, just plan on there being lots of cars around you. And if you leave early enough and uh, just plan to have a leisurely time around the ballpark before the game starts, I think you'll be fine. Definitely. And and so now wanting to kind of talk about your career, where you started and, and where you grew up. And, and you're from Missouri, where I'm from. I'm from uh, Springfield, Missouri area. Uh, spent time about two and a half years in downtown St. Louis. And so a lot of my listeners are going to be from both Illinois and Missouri. So I want to spend time talking about that and, and growing up in the St. Louis area and what that whole experience was like for you. Uh, it was great uh, from a sports perspective because I was a big football fan, hockey fan, and baseball fan. We had all three sports. Of course, the Hawks left, and that's why my dad got to Atlanta. He came with the then St. Louis Hawks. 
uh, to come to Atlanta, but all three of our generations were born there. Uh, still have my mom living there. My, my grandparents, aunts and uncles are either still there or, or buried there. Uh, and so for a sports fan watching uh, Jim Hart and the uh, St. Louis football Cardinals and watching Vince Coleman and Willie McGee with the uh, uh, St. Louis Cardinals and then Gary Unger, Bob Plager, Barkley Plager and Red Berenson, Mike Liute and company with the St. Louis Blues. Uh, it really was a young sports fan's dream because there was always something going on with the professional sports teams in St. Louis. And look, it wasn't a big market, never has been a big giant market, but the fans are extremely knowledgeable and passionate. And from that standpoint, I loved uh, being a fan of the St. Louis teams and franchises. Look, if you're born in St. Louis, you know the starting lineup, the 64 Cardinals, probably before you know your ABCs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was really no different in that regard. I was the kid that laid in bed with his transistor radio tucked under his pillow listening to Jack Buck, Mike Shannon, Jay Randolph, and Bob Starr doing the Cardinals games from the West Coast. And we were really spoiled with Dan Kelly, uh, you know, doing hockey and those uh, names I mentioned doing the Cardinals games. For a young budding kid who wanted to either be an athlete or a sportscaster, it really was a fertile uh, learning curve and a learning ground uh, for me to get into the industry. And uh, uh, I, I love that part of it. My personal side of things, it wasn't so great. I don't need to get into that. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot of lessons growing up as a, a St. Louis teen and graduated from high school and ended up going to Georgia where my life changed for the better. And, um, you know, I've, I've never, ever looked back or turned my back on, on growing up in St. Louis. I always go back very, very fondly and, uh, you know, always dreamed of what it would like to be an announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals, either the football team or the baseball team. And uh, obviously the Cardinals have a wonderful broadcaster in Dan McLaughlin there. So um, still home, still love going there. Uh, don't get there often enough. But hopefully uh, once this pandemic clears, we can start traveling again and we can all sit back and watch that sea of red fill up Bush Stadium. It, and it is probably one of the, of course, Wrigley is always going to be my favorite. Um, and then I, I really like Coors Field on, out in Colorado as well. Uh, Fenway and Yankee Stadium, of course, you can't go wrong. But really the way they did, I liked Old Bush as well, the, the cookie cutter um, type of back then. That was kind of how they built them. But really the way they've done the new ballpark, it's probably one of my favorites. And kind of like what you were talking about there in Atlanta with you know ballpark village and there's just a lot to do down there on a game day so it's kind of a similar setup i would say to atlanta where it's you can get there early and, and there's things to do as well yeah well the bush stadium i think was really the first model for that uh you know the ballpark and entertainment complex uh, all in one area uh that was the model for it but the economic downturn under uh, two administrations ago kind of wiped that out and put it on hold uh, they were finally able to get started, and now it's sort of revitalizing that part of downtown in St. Louis. And the Braves um, certainly uh, learned a lesson from that. You know, give people a reason to come to the ballpark and hang out just besides just going to the game. And obviously, the economic benefits for the franchises are enormous uh, to have, you know, people buying lunch and buying souvenirs and things on your property as, and, and then go into the game and do it some more. So uh, it was very, very wise, very, very smart. And I, I love what they did in St. Louis and in incorporating that beautiful and magnificent vista looking northeast toward the arch uh, <laughs> and the river and, and all the downtown buildings and the like. And for someone, again, who grew up there, uh, that symbolism has very, very special meaning to me and to people who go to that place, not to mention the, the red seats and the Cardinals and the incredibly passionate, knowledgeable fans that they have. It's a, you know, it's a unique atmosphere. It's a great place. And they, they did a, a great job of shoehorning the stadium in, in a way that is unmistakably St. Louis when you look out at the field. And that's really the whole purpose. You know, every place has to have its own character. Like you said, Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, Coors Field. Um, that's the beauty of these ballparks. They all have their own and unique and innate personalities. And uh, the Cardinals certainly did a great job with theirs. For sure. And uh, last thing on St. Louis, too, I have to ask you, being a fellow Missourian, and, and you mentioned, Chip, the, you know, growing up watching the St. Louis Cardinals football team, and then um, obviously they had the Rams there for about 21 years. And um, I didn't realize until I moved to St. Louis, I guess that would have been in 2018, how much it hurt, you know, when the Rams left. So I couldn't even imagine, you know, the Cardinals as well. I know, I know, I mean, they were still to this day, people in St. Louis talk about the Cardinals. And then, of course, they still talk about the Rams. Um, what, as a fellow kind of St. Louisian, I guess is what they call it, when those teams or, or the Cardinals left, was it the same thing back then as it was the Rams? There was that bitter taste. There was, you know, a lot of negativity toward the move. What was kind of that 
whole whole deal. Oh, I can't speak to either one of those situations because when the St. Louis football Cardinals left, I had already left to go to college and I'd never lived in St. Louis when the Rams were there. Um, but talking to people that I know, uh, there's a great deal of frustration because I think St. Louis had a reputation that they didn't support the team, which was anything but the truth. Uh, they were uh, ready to build a new stadium for the Rams ownership. They were ready to, uh, you know, try to revitalize downtown. The owner wanted to go to L.A. and he up and left. And I guess in a way it was kind of like when Art Modell left Cleveland to take his team to Baltimore. When the Browns left, um, you know, a big part of the, of the city and the civic pride that goes along with having a, a professional football, basketball or hockey or baseball team. Uh, went away as well. Um, I was disappointed as a St. Louisan because I know how passionate and how great those fans are and how well that team was supported. Um, that hurts. That hurts anytime you lose something like that. Um, but ultimately, uh, the ownership of the Rams made the decision that they made. The Bidwells made the decision that they made. And uh, St. Louis uh, marches forward proudly with uh, the Cardinals and the Blues representing the city in great ways. And uh, the opportunity for fans to watch football professionally isn't there. But they've got Missouri and the SEC. They've got the big the Illini across the river. Um, you know, they get good football. And in some cases, it might be actually better than what the Rams put on the field. So uh, <laughs> Los Angeles has gained uh, in, in some ways ways, I guess, may not necessarily be St. Louis's loss, because I think a lot of people will say to the ownership of the Rams, uh, good riddance. Yep, definitely. And, and wanting to kind of switch to now talking about your time at University of Georgia, I know just in kind of prepping for this, uh, you speak very highly of University of Georgia, and, and uh, they, they've done a lot for you personally. Um, talk about your time at University of Georgia and how that really helped shape the rest of your career moving forward? Yeah, well, I came from St. Louis. Um, you know, again, my home life wasn't particularly good. Um, and, you know, I needed to go somewhere where I could find out who I was and what I was. I was a big, tall, overweight kid um, with very little in my pocket, uh, very little on my uh, my uh, uh, my grade sheets for a high school. Uh, wasn't a good student because of the issues uh, where I lived. Um, but uh, went down to Georgia and interviewed for the opportunity to, to try out, basically, to take some tests and see if I could be accepted. And I was. Um, and every day that, uh, you know, I, I think about that place, I'm grateful for the opportunity that they gave me. I, I didn't know what a grit was. I mean, I felt like my cousin Vinny, uh, you know, didn't know what a grit was, had no idea about the passion of Southeastern Conference football. Uh, you know, didn't know about the Masters and the Azalea all that much. And uh, it was truly a, a, a life-changing experience. I got to enjoy a completely and totally different culture from what I grew up and was used to in the Midwest. And uh, the people of Georgia were extremely accommodating and welcoming to me. I uh, made lifelong friends that I still have to this day uh, at a time when I needed friends. I didn't have many of them uh, where I was in St. Louis. And uh, you know, to be able to come down and uh, just sort of shed the... the uh, uh, the frustrations, the disappointments, and the hurts of what had happened in my first 17 or 18 years to come to Georgia and sort of like the old uh, analogy of the, the, the butterfly uh, coming out of the cocoon, that's sort of what happened to me. Uh, I was challenged academically and uh, turned into a Dean's List student. Uh, I was on the radio campus radio station, won radio awards and all that kind of stuff. And obviously the proximity to Atlanta and my dad and the opportunities that gave me in the summer to watch and observe were extremely helpful in my career. But uh, the bottom line was uh, I wouldn't be the man or the person that I am without the experience of being at Georgia. And look, I did stupid stuff and made a lot of mistakes. Um, but I really, I think, uh, came of age as a college student there uh, academically, intellectually, uh, socially, which is really the main purpose of college anyway. The grades are the grades. But you go to college to learn about life, and I'm so grateful that uh, the life lessons that I was taught there are ones that I've been able to keep, not just for myself, but pass along to my children, too, two of whom are at uh, Georgia as we speak. And now, do you uh, still keep in contact with any professors you had? Do you go back and do, like, uh, alumni events or, or in, take part in, like, engagement events with them? Or, or And you mentioned you're, you've got two kids that are going to Georgia now. Um is there anything you you have that connection? But are there any other connections you still have to the university? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm tied with the journalism professor Charles Davis, journalism dean Charles Davis. He's a, he's a, a friend. We were we were college students together. Uh, Bill Lee was a very influential uh, journalism law professor who's now since retired and taught one of my sons in his last class before uh, he went off into retirement. 
Um, but as far as doing things with the college, I don't live in Georgia. I live, I live in Florida in the off season. So ah. geography makes it tough. And the other side of it too, is maybe subconsciously, you know, I, I want my own kids to go there and shine and come out of their cocoon as it were, you know, this is their time at college. My dad didn't come up and see me hardly at all in college. Um, I don't think he really wanted to. Um, I would love to, but I think it's important that my kids go to school and be Chris and Stephen Carey, not, not Chip Carey's dad and, uh, or Chip Carey's sons. And, um, you know, th th that's really important to me. They have to find their own way and I'm confident that they will. But to answer your question, I'm still very close to the university, still hold it very dear to heart, never miss a football game, either on TV or if in the rare occasion I get to get up there and, and uh, see it in person. And um, uh, as I said, forever grateful for uh, uh, the remarkable uh, things that Georgia has done, uh, not just for me, but for my extended family as well. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. And, and really, um, I, I admire, you know, how highly you hold the university. I've heard nothing but great things. And so it's great to talk to an alum and, and uh, hear that perspective from them. From them. So then you went on to do some work with the Braves and I believe the Mariners, and then you did play-by-play -play for the Orlando Magic. So before we get into those Cubs years, those crazy kind of sometimes wacky Cubs years, I want to talk about those experiences and, and the Orlando Magic and, and uh, working for, the, for those franchises. Well, I, I was 24 years old and was doing uh, TV, <coughs> pardon me, TV news and sports in Greensboro, North Carolina. That was my second job out of college. Pardon me. <clears throat> uh, my second job out of college, and uh, uh, Bob Neal was doing uh, was a colleague of my dad's at Turner Broadcasting, and was in Houston for the All Star Game, the NBA All Star Game in 1987, I guess it was, or 86, whenever it was. And Bob Neal said, "Hey Pat, who, who are you going to hire to do your games?" And Pat said, "I don't know. We haven't even gotten there yet." And Bob Neal said, "Well, I know somebody that you might want to take a look at." And Bob Neal had never told me he was going to do this. Um, and Pat Williams said, who? And Bob Neal said, Chip Carey. He said, do you think Skip Carey would want to come do Orlando Magic Basketball? And Bob said, not Skip, his son Chip. And Pat went, oh, God, there's another one. Because he had been the general manager of the Bulls when Harry was in Chicago with the White Sox. and was actually at one point the GM of the Hawks when my dad was doing the games there. And Bob said, yeah, there's another one, and he's pretty good. I think you ought to take a look at him for, for a, a franchise that's going to be young and just starting. This would be a perfect opportunity for both of you to grow together. Well, uh, one thing led to another, and Pat Williams reached out, called me, and asked if I'd like to audition for the job. And I was kind of like Bob Costas. I had never done basketball before, but I faked it and sent him a tape. And um, he, he called me back and said, okay, we saw your tape. It's fine, but we need to see more. So he flew me down to Orlando for what was then the Orlando All-Star Classic. And it was basically a pre-draft uh, tournament, uh, basketball camp, for all the guys that were going to go uh, high in the draft. At that time, I think they had uh, two, maybe three rounds of the NBA draft. And they brought all these kids in to play on mixed-up teams, uh, this tournament, so all the scouts and coaches could look at them and see them in NBA game conditions. Well, Pat Williams had me work with Bucky Waters, who at the time was the Dick Vitale and Billy Packer of college basketball. And he was my analyst. And we did, I think, eight games in two days. Uh, I did a whole lot of homework, studied the tapes, came down, did the games, took off my headset and said to Mr. Water, well, thank you, sir. That was really a fantastic time. I'm here auditioning for the magic job. I don't know if I'm going to get it. But he said, son, how long have you been doing basketball? And I looked at him. I said, is this just between us? And he said, sure. I said, well, actually, sir, these are the first eight games I've ever done. And Bucky Waters jaw dropped. He said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, sir, I'm a baseball guy. And I just came down and, and you know, worked hard and tried to figure this out. And he said, son, I think you're going to be just fine. And uh, luckily <laughs> for me, a couple of weeks later, they flew me down, interviewed me and offered me the job. And uh, I went from the University of Georgia at the age of 21, 22 to 24 years old, being the TV voice of the Orlando Magic. And when I tell you I was worse than the team, uh, I think it's important, Tyler, that your audience understands that this is a team that won 15 games out of 82 in its first year. I had no idea what I had gotten into uh, and was lucky enough to work with Jack Givens and Pat Williams was very helpful. Uh, but they let me grow on the job. And I can tell you that if I were a 23, 24 year old kid and did the stupid stuff that I did then now with Twitter and Facebook, I'd be pumping gas or selling cars or waiting tables. There's no way that uh, anybody would have allowed me to grow on the job like I was able to. 
And uh, again, when you talk about uh, being where we are, uh, gratitude has to be at the top of the list, not just for my college, but for people who saw something in me that I didn't see myself. And uh, uh, very unexpectedly, I, I became the youngest uh, broadcaster in the NBA and uh, grew with the team all the way through the Shaq, uh, Shaq O'Neal and Penny Hardaway and Horace Grant years and uh, uh, really enjoyed that different lifestyle, the wintertime travel. And, uh, um, you know, just just got used to uh, being an NBA guy and wondered if a baseball opportunity would ever come up. And obviously it did. But, yeah, the, the Orlando Magic years were incredibly informative uh, and helpful. And uh, I owe uh, the city of Orlando a great deal of gratitude for welcoming me into their home uh, as a 24 year old snot nosed kid who thought he had the world by the you know what's but didn't. <laughs> and I. Uh... I went to my first Orlando Magic game a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that was my first time I'd been to, you know, really Orlando and and the Magic. So I got to enjoy, you know, the Universal Studios, and Orlando's just a great area. But I was really, uh, really impressed with the stadium they have and the, you know, just the whole setup. Um, and, and the team, obviously, with COVID, you know, they're not selling out or anything by any means. But, you know, the passion for the fans. So are you able to still, you know, during the offseason – go up, go to games, and, and kind of talk about, especially during those Shaq and Horse Grant years, uh, talk about the fans and, and you know, the passion they had back then as well, if you want to. Yeah, mind. well, the arena you're in is not the one that I broadcast from. Uh, we did games at the original Orlando Arena, which has since been destroyed uh, and knocked down. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, the, I don't get to many games. I don't live in Orlando in the offseason. Um, I live about two hours away from Orlando. So and I kind of have a funny tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, philosophy. If I'm if I, with doing 155 or 160 baseball games, uh, if I'm not getting paid, I don't really want to go to another event unless it's a Georgia football game. So <laughs> uh, I'm happy to watch it on TV and avoid the four-hour round-trip drive. But, no, great fans, passionate fans. Look, Orlando isn't Miami, and that's uh, – you know, that's what makes Florida so unique. Every city has its own unique character and culture. And, uh, you know, there's there is a rivalry between Miami and Orlando. Miami thinks of Orlando as a bunch of uh, citrus farming rubes who drive pickup trucks and go to theme parks all the time. And, uh, you know, we think of Miami as uh, southern New York and all the problems that that city has. So uh, there's a very, there's an awful lot of mutual dislike uh, between those two fan bases. But ours in Orlando was incredibly supportive. It was very familial. And the people that owned the team at the time were very welcoming of me uh, and my family and, uh, you know, made me feel like I had a place, that I had an important place in their organization. And for somebody who's trying to find their way and feel their way in a new town, new organization, new responsibilities, new uh, focus on who you are and what you're doing, um, those kinds of things, I think, were really, really important and helpful. Definitely. And, and uh Glad to hear that Orlando really was was helpful for you and was, you know, helped you grow as a broadcaster. I think that's really important and really a big lesson that I like, you know, those are the kind of stories I like people to tell is, you know, how they grew as a person at their different stops or, or grew as a broadcaster in this. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I met my wife in Orlando. Uh, my children were all born in Orlando. Uh, you know, I, I figured out what I should and shouldn't be doing as a as a uh, an announcer in Orlando basketball led me to baseball, which led me to Fox Sports, which led me to the Mariners and the Cubs, as you mentioned. And so, you know, everything, you know, everything is somewhat linear, but it's, you know, it's not a vacuum. You know, you're, you're the connections and things that you do now uh, do impact you 20, 30 years down the road. And I worked hard to have a good reputation as a as an Orlando Magic fan. And just the other day, sitting in sitting at a coffee shop in Atlanta, uh, doing some prep work for a game yesterday. Some guy drives by with his window down and says, hey, Chip, Mission Orlando, I'm a big Magic fan. I mean, I, you know, that's, it's just crazy that, you know, I, I've been gone from Orlando now uh, 24 years, and people still are appreciative of and remember uh, the rather insignificant role I played in the early days of that franchise. But it's rewarding because at the end of the day, you, all you want to do is try to do your best. And as I said before, uh, I really feel bad for today's kids coming out of college and people trying to do what we do uh, in that they don't get the opportunity to make the mistakes that we were allowed to make or the mistakes that we made on the job. Now, it's like being an umpire in every facet of our society. You have to be perfect and get better from there. And that's that's awfully tough and an awful lot of pressure. And so, as I said before, I'm just grateful that I was in that time, in that place, and uh, uh, the impact of the city on me and my family and my life was was enormous. And it's something that, uh, again, I, I, I'm always happy to talk about. And when I have a chance to speak favorably, Orlando, I'm never hesitant to do so. 
For sure. Now getting into your Cubs days, uh, and I might have a similar uh, moment later, uh, similar to that guy who drove by the coffee shop yesterday, only for the Cubs in my in my situation. Uh, that's how much I admired your, you as a broadcaster with them. And uh, again, some of my greatest memories, Chip, we're watching you and Steve Stone uh, broadcast the games. Look forward to running home from the bus and catching the seventh, eighth and ninth innings and hopefully Cubs win. Uh, so what were some of your favorite Cub memories? Obviously, there was the thrill of 1998 and and being able to broadcast with a guy like Steve Stone. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, you know, I was a Cardinal fan. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, as we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really think much about the Cubs, uh, but I knew it was it was a huge job in that at the time that I was there, you know, the original plan was for me to uh, work the middle three innings of, of home games and do all the road games. It was kind of, it was going to be kind of an entree, a tryout, if you were, to see how uh, working with Harry Carey and Steve Stone was going to work out. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my grandfather died, and I was thrust into now a full-time role. And I don't think people can understand the enormity of a position like that. You know, it's hard following a legend. And Harry was. He was legendary. And the time he was in Chicago... He was, you know, he, he had kids, grandchildren and great grandchildren. He was, you know, a man about town. He was in the Hall of Fame and could pretty much do whatever he wanted to do and get away with it. Uh, I was a 32 year old man with a with an infant daughter uh, living in Florida, trying to find out you know, where to live in a big city, not to mention make my way in a big league booth with a guy that should be in the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster and Steve Stone. And following a guy uh, whose microphone crew, producer, director, and team I was suddenly in charge of. It was a daunting task. It was really, really, really hard. And, um, you know, favorite moments, uh, you know, 98 <laughs> certainly sticks out because of Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood. That team in and of itself getting to the playoffs was, was fantastic. Uh, the friendship with Arnie Harris and Steve Stone is, you know, to, in Steve's case, still to this day. Um, again, I, I'm just grateful that uh, people were accepting of me in the way that they were. And it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't completely in, in, in uh, smooth sailing for me. There were a lot of people that didn't like my grandfather and were more than happy to uh, express that and take it out on me, which isn't fair. But that did take place. And you had the whole Cubs and the White Sox rivalry and all that kind of stuff. And then, as I said, being from St. Louis, that made you kind of uh, on the fence as a Cub fan. But when I did the games, I made it very clear I wanted the Cubs to win. And I, I was a Cub fan. And hanging around Ron Santo and Pat Hughes and Arnie Harris, as I said, uh, Sharon Panazzo and Andy McPhail and Ed Lynch, um, you know, it, it, it did take a village. And a lot of people were there to support and help me because they understood that nobody in this world, even with the same name, which I do have as Harry Carey, was ever going to replace him. You were merely going to follow him. And all you could do is go in and give it your best shot and try to show to the audience that you cared, that you're passionate, that you knew what you were doing and that you could um, make the games exciting and entertaining and informative uh, as best you could. And I think we did that. And I think I did that very early on. And I'm very, very proud of that, knowing that there were probably two people in the whole world that could have filled that job at that time. My dad was one and I was the other. And, uh, you know, 1998 was the start of a, a, a terrific seven year run. Uh, where a lot of crazy stuff happened, but it was instrumental in my growth as a person and a broadcaster. And again, I'm just very grateful it happened. And one of your uh, favorite calls that I want to, I have to bring it up and I still, I'm not going to repeat it on here word for word because I'll mess it up. Uh, you can look on YouTube if, or people can look on YouTube. Uh, but definitely the one that sticks out for me, Chip, the most is when you called Sammy Sosa's 500th home run, they were in Cincinnati and just your excitement and the passion behind the call. And then you said, you know, Sammy Sosa earns that ticket to Cooperstown. And so, uh, you know, just hearing that, it always stuck with me. Um, and I remember looking at my dad and saying, you know, he that was his 500th. He hit it. So what about that call in particular? Obviously, we could go down the list, but that call, you know, was definitely one of my favorites. So can you kind of talk about that whole that game and that whole experience with Sammy hitting his 500th home run? Yeah, to be honest, I don't really remember the game. I remember the home run uh, vaguely. Uh, you know, look, the bottom line is my philosophy as an announcer is it's our job to enhance what fans can see. Uh, on television, you have the pictures, you have, uh, you know, you have sound effects. Our job is to get in, say what we want to say, and then get out. 
And I, I you know, yeah, I, I was still young enough. And I guess even now at 56 years old, I'm still young enough to get excited at big moments because look, we're not digging ditches and we're not tarring roofs. <laughs> we're watching a baseball game. And our job, as I said, is to inform and entertain people and make no mistake about it. When we were there, you know, we were watching history. Uh, you know, the Kerry Wood game is one that stands out, obviously, more than others, because in the history of baseball, with all the thousands of games that have been pitched, Kerry Wood's 20 strikeout game is the highest uh, game score of any pitcher ever to throw a major league game. And for me, that happened like my 20th game as a big league announcer. So, um, you know, those kinds of moments, I think, are what separate the men from the boys. When the big moment happens, when the ball is in play. Um, our job is to nail that call. And it's every broadcaster's fears to screw it up. And I've screwed up my share of them. Um, but, you know, when Sammy Sosa came to the plate, the historic run that he was on in 98, you just knew that there was a chance something spectacular was going to happen. So, yeah, your spidey senses were tingling every time he came to the batter's box. And knowing he was sitting on 499 in that ballpark, you figured you had a pretty good chance that uh, he was going to hit 500. And when guys hit a milestone home run like that, um, you just want to nail it and then get out of the way and let the moment speak for itself. We did the same thing when McGuire broke uh, Roger Maris's record with number 70 in St. Louis. I don't think we talked for three and a half, four minutes uh, as the crowd was roaring. There's nothing else that we could or needed to say in, in, in a time like that. And uh, I, I stand by what I said at the time. You know, we didn't know or maybe we suspected we knew what we knew about Sammy Sosa. But when guys got to 500 home runs, that pretty much punched their ticket to the Hall of Fame. And uh, the things that Sammy Sosa was doing to the baseball over that three or four year period were certainly Cooperstown worthy. And uh, to have a front seat for that was an awful lot of fun. Absolutely. And another call, too. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Kerry Wood game. Uh Talking about that game, too, I've watched that game several times um, since then, rewatched it, and really, what a cruddy day at Wrigley Field. Outside of the game, you know, the weather was, yeah. just watching it, I was like, the people look miserable. I don't really think there were that many there. Um, and then I've also heard interviews where Kerry said that he didn't really even feel good that game. He was just going in, and he didn't, you know, obviously nobody knew what was going to happen, but he was like, I didn't really think, not putting words in his mouth, but basically he was going to have a great game or was going to do what he did. So as this game's going on, what was going through your, your head from start to finish? And, and just as the strikeouts kept coming, was there any sort of like, Hey, we're making history or were you in the moment and not really thinking about, you know, the potential of 20? We're, well, I wasn't in the moment until we get to the fifth or sixth inning and he had whatever, 13, 14, 15 strikeouts and he's still throwing 97 miles an hour. Then you go like, wait a minute, something's going on here. Uh, and remember back in the day, you know, we didn't have uh, the instantaneous stats ink services. We actually had a book. We had a Major League Baseball record book and had to look up, uh, you know, like we would with the Encyclopedia Britannica. We had to look up who had the most strikeouts in Cubs history, who had the most strikeouts in National League history, in Major League history. We had to get that list and actually research that on the fly uh, because we didn't have the instantaneous statistical services that you have now. So we're acting like a librarian. We're calling the game. We don't know how far he's going to go. You know, we didn't know if Jim Ruggerman was going to leave him in for all nine innings. Uh, there was obviously no stress. There was obviously no problem with Kerry Wood because the, the Astros couldn't touch him. But the moment that I figured out something interesting was happening was when Jeff Torborg, former uh, Mets manager and the former Marlins manager, uh, on AOL Instant Messenger, which I guess was the which was in vogue at that time, it was a really cool thing. People had a computer they could ding in with you uh, if they had your phone number uh, on a computer. And Jeff Torborg says, "Without gardening." And when you said Kerry Wood has 15 strikeouts and it's the fifth inning or whatever the hell it was, he said, "I stopped gardening and came in and watched the rest of the game." And that's that was pretty much, uh, you know, what happened. And I, I've always said that, you know, that was Kerry Woods coming out party as a major league pitcher. How could it not be struck out 20 of the best hitters in baseball with a Houston team that I think won the division that year? Bell, Biggio, Bagwell and Ricky Gutierrez and others. And for me, uh, right place at the right time to be able to call that game and to talk with Steve Stone and to let Steve Stone take over the pitching part of it when he saw something as spectacular as this take place. Um, it was Kerry Woods coming out party. And I think really for Steve Stone and me, it was the coming out party because we, were, we really acted as a, a great team that day. And Arnie Harrison and our crew 
uh, with the great shots. And I'll never forget Mark Brady, our one of our producers, was down on the field putting the earpiece in Kerry Woods' ear so he could talk to us and his hand shaking. And he's always said he was more nervous about the interview than he was the game. And, uh, you know, uh, just to see this fuzzy-faced 24-year-old kid uh, begin his major league journey with a 20-strikeout game and uh, to be there to watch that again, as I said, really lucky, really fortunate, right place at the right time because, you know, that could have been anybody. Uh, but it was me. It was my turn. And, and uh, that's the game, I guess, that sort of in, 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 um, inexplicably intertwines me in, in uh, Cub broadcasting lore. And I want to talk more about um, so obviously being around the team and, and getting to experience, you know, like moments like that. And, you know, Sosa's 500, the, the, the home run chase calling those games we could go down the list and talk for you know three hours uh but are there any cool stories that you have that just stand out uh whether it's traveling with the team being around a particular team uh broadcasting moments are there a couple stories you have that you could share that just stand out that that really mean a lot to you or, or yeah, are funny? Well, I mean, well you know there's an old saying in baseball when it comes to being in the locker room or on the plate yeah. in those private areas what happens here stays here and uh, you know I, I've never really gotten into that because I just don't think that's fair to the players involved but I will say as a general as a general comment uh, you know really good teams are usually pretty accessible teams you know when the guys treat you like a like an adult and you're fair with them uh, you know, Henry Rodriguez and Eric Young and Mark Grace, uh, Scott Service, uh, Sandy Martinez, uh, Kevin Tappany, uh, those guys were all pros and they accepted me and treated me as um, you know, Jeff Blauser, Rod Beck. Those guys treated me as as part of the team, the team meaning uh, the entire product that was the Chicago Cubs. And, and that's important. Uh, we take no we get no pleasure out of seeing a team lose 10, 11 games in a row. It makes our job a hell of a lot harder. Uh, but make no mistake, we're not responsible for it. And I think the really good players understand that we have a difficult job to do sometimes. And when they allow us to be honest and fair, uh, you know, if a guy goes over four, we're not saying he's a terrible human being. We're saying he had a bad day at the ballpark. That happens. Uh, that's the nature yep. of the sport. And the really, really good players understand that, uh, 90% of the time we try to find positive stuff to say. And unfortunately there is a time where the 10% is warranted and, um, by and large during my Cubs career, with the exception of one season, um, guys were always willing to accept the fact that that was what needed to be done. And frankly, I was probably easier on them than my grandfather was. So maybe it was a relief, <laughs> but, um, you know, our, my policy has always been, uh, you know, keep what, uh, what happens behind closed doors there, but understand that, uh, Again, our job is to inform and entertain. I don't work for the players, and I will always try to be fair. And if you're going to take umbrage with something I say, then you better be first in line to say thank you when I say you went four for four and were the MVP of the game. And if that happens, we're 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 uh, we're in good shape. Definitely. So, are there any? And I wasn't trying to put you on the spot with 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 that. I was. Are there any stories though about maybe people who visited Wrigley Field you got to meet, or just? Being, you know, being a broadcaster. Well, yeah, well, yeah of course. I mean, the, the, the greatest opportunity for that was the seventh inning stretch. You know, when we had all yep. those guest conductors coming up. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne, you've seen that video. I mean, that's that's an hour-long story. Uh, Donald <laughs> Trump came up the first time he ran for president. He just married Melania. That was fun. Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, one of the royals, after she had uh, divorced Prince Andrew, was there and wanted, was trying to get us to get her a, a date with Mark McGuire. I mean, uh, Ron <laughs> Sano, uh, Barney the Dinosaur sang one day and I had to shove him up the stairs because he couldn't get out. I mean, uh, it was, it, you know, John McDonough, uh, the former Blackhawks president, former Cubs president, and the former marketing director of the Cubs, one of the great sports geniuses of all time because he understood the magic of Wrigley Field. It was more than a game. It was about the experience of being there and singing the seventh inning stretch and watching those people come in and seeing 38,000 sets of eyes turn toward that booth while someone sang it, hopefully horribly, because, you know, bad, you know, bad, bad review is a good review in, in marketing uh, speak. Um, you know, John knew that you could sell Ivy and the uh, pretty girls in the bleachers and, you know, an occasional home run from Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood. Uh, Ryan Dempster and people would be entertained. And he was in many ways a, a, a modern day version of Bill Veck. Uh, who, he got it. He just understood it, at least from my perspective and my dealings with John. And um, those are the kinds of things that made Wrigley Field so much fun, not just the games, 
but the people that your your audience would never know, the ushers, the organist, Gary Pressey, uh, hanging out with Ron Sano, uh, Robert the chef, you know, in the upstairs press box, dining, dining room, uh, the security people who led us into the ballpark. I mean, we had so many people that, that you know, Wrigley Field kind of became a, a, a type of an ex- extended family for us. And, um, you know, it, it was special, as I said earlier about all the ballparks, it was special in its own way, its own unique way. And the best way that I can describe it, Tyler, is that once a Cub, always a Cub. Um, if you spend any length of time in that place, it, you, you begin to understand the culture. And the culture that I was a part of was the tortured, we're never going to win a World Series, how long do I have to live before we see this happen? Uh, but to see the passion, to see the exuberance, and to see the fun, to see the three, four generations of fans that would come and watch that team play, to see the Ivy Bloom, the boats out on the water, and Arnie Harris and the hat shots, all of that is part of what made that place so very special, and it still is for me. And uh, last question about the Cubs, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Braves season and, and get into our last segment, which is Tyler's Five. But I know we met um, at Wrigley Field on the Concord, or we met during the World Series on the concourse at Wrigley. And I remember, uh, I think I tweeted at you or, or sent you a message saying, hey, I just like, if you're there, I'd just like to shake your hand and say thank you for the memories. And, you know, it's a very special time. You know, I was working for the Cubs at the time. So just being there, I was like, I just want to see the Cubs in the World Series, win a World Series, let alone being there, working for the team. Uh, and I remember shaking your hand and and you and I were the only people in the concourse because nobody left their seats. I'd never seen anything like it before at a ballpark. It was everybody was there watching the game and only left their seat, you know, in between innings. And so that was very special for me to be able to share a moment like that with you. I got to meet Mark Pryor, who was, you know, my favorite pitcher growing up. Um, that was one of the cool parts. So what that was for me. So for you. What was that whole World Series experience like because of, you know, because of your background with the Cubs and, and just how special that run was? Well, it was really special because I'm, I'm grateful to Lou Canellis and Fox 32 in Chicago. They brought me up to be kind of a guest analyst uh, to help out with the coverage of the World Series, things to look for. And I, I got to be there. I mean, look, when you when you don't work for a team anymore, it's kind of hard to be you know as as into it uh, and as excited for it. But I was there as a journalist. And I was there as, uh, you know, a, a closet Cub fan because, look, you spend that much time of your life, you know, seven, eight years of your life, you know, you invest a lot. And uh, it was not about me in any way, shape or form. But as I said, all the people that were there and had waited for so, so long, the generations of Cubs fans who wondered, oh, my God, are we really going to do this? And I was thinking about, well, what my grandfather would have really loved this. And Ron Santo would have loved being there uh, for that. Um, you know, the, the countless other people who came to that ballpark waiting and hoping and had to uh, only to have their hearts broken in 84 and, and 93 or, you know, and, and uh, excuse me, 03 uh, with Bartman and, and the like. I mean, all that stuff rolls through your head. And then you see Joe Madden come out and hug his wife after they did the impossible in the concourse down below in the stadium uh, in Cleveland. Um, then you see Eddie Vedder after the game at two o'clock in the morning and he's, you know, hammered and having a great time and he recognizes <laughs> you and remembers you and says, Oh my God, I was thinking about you and your granddad when I sang the seventh inning stretch at Wrigley and we had it on the split screen. And I said, that was great. You know? And, um, again, those are the kinds of things that, that I really enjoy because it's not about the balls and strikes. It's about the people and it's about the memories you make. And it's, again, about the impact you hope you make on people. You just hope that you leave the position in a better spot than when you found it. And you hope that people come to expect that uh, or come to respect the fact that every day you gave 100 percent. And if you'll pardon the pun, you let the chips fall where they may. And, and, it, and it worked out in the end for everybody. But uh, 16 was great. Very happy for the Cubs. Hope they uh, don't win a World Series anytime soon because I want the Braves to do it. And, um, you know, I, I'm very happy to have and very honored to have been a very, very, very insignificantly small part of of uh, what the Cubs were able to get done. Absolutely. And I'll publicly say this, too. Uh, thank you for the memories, Chip, and thank you for for doing what you did as a broadcaster. It was, again, some of my greatest memories were watching you and and Steve. So I just want to take this time to thank you and, and always enjoyed following your career. Uh, even now that you're with the Braves, I always enjoy when you come on the TV and watching you broadcast a, a baseball game. So uh, well, thank uh, you. definitely, uh, definitely ready for baseball season. And so with that, how are the Braves looking? You talked a little bit about it earlier. How are they looking and what, what can we expect out of the team this year? And, and uh, 
hopefully, uh, like you said, we'll crown a World Series winner, and, and maybe it'll be the Cubs, or maybe it'll be the Braves. Yeah, Braves should be very good. They won the division in the last three years. The Eastern Division and the National League is going to be a, a really, really gr- uh, tough grind. Uh, the Braves, though, have a lot of pitching, a lot of deep pitching. They have a very good offense, even without the DH. Uh, and they have more players coming. They've done a remarkable job of winning and still rebuilding through their farm system. Uh, they're close to setting their roster now, and they, they're going to have a lot of interchangeable parts. Uh, but look, this is a team that's been led so ably by Brian Snitker. He's the perfect guy for this job. He's an Illinois native. Uh, perfect guy for the job. Pros pro. Players love playing for him. We love communicating with him. Uh, he's very honest, very, um, you know, no filter, uh, which we love. And uh, look, this is a team that came within uh, four innings of going to the World Series last year. They feel like there's some unfinished business, and now it's up to them to go go out and do it. And I think that's going to be the challenge for this group. Uh, when you think of the, uh, the the 1990s version of the Braves, every year they had a target on their back and nobody could touch them. Every year somebody else is picked to win the East or everybody, Pakoda says that they're only going to win 86 games or 82 games and they go out and they shatter those expectations because um, they play so well as a unit. And uh, look, I think the Braves have it. Until somebody beats them, they're the team to beat. And if they can just clean up a few things and, and, and uh, get into the postseason tournament again, I think uh, I like their chances as much as anybody's. This is a good young club with a very, very big window of opportunity, much like the Cubs had. And uh, I think it'd be a real shame if a guy like Freddie Freeman doesn't get a chance to get in the World Series and, 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 and try to win one uh, because he's such an underrated, such such an underrated player, such an underrated person that uh, we talk all the time about Mike Trout and Tatis and Manny Machado. Freddie Freeman's the kind of guy that everybody should be talking about on and off the field. And I'm hopeful that uh, uh, come October, he'll again have that uh, incredible stage to show all those things off to a national audience. Definitely looking forward to the season, and uh, it's going to be an exciting one. I know people are are eager for baseball. Obviously, we've had some spring training games, but they're eager for the regular season to get back in the stands. And uh, I look forward, Chip, to seeing you uh, at the ballpark some at least once this summer. Well, I hope so, Tyler. Uh, we're, like I said, we're, we're trending in the right direction. Testing is going fantastically well, knock on wood. Uh, fans are going to go into most of, if not all, the ballparks in some percentage capacity. Uh, we've got the All-Star game this year in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, we've got a really, really good team. So uh, hopefully we'll ramp up to normalcy as sooner, sooner rather than later. I'm all for that. Uh, I've got my vaccine, so I'm good to go. And uh, if people have a chance to get it, go ahead and get that done so we can get back to normal, get rid of these stupid masks and, and live our lives. And uh, I hope that baseball will be a, a big part in helping people get back to feeling normal and feeling uh, uh, like COVID never happened as much as we can make that happen. That's our job. We're here to make people forget about those things for a little while. And uh, I think all of us in baseball are grateful for the opportunity to provide some, uh, some hours of excitement and entertainment for people in what have been very, very trying times over the last 18 months. For sure. Hey, uh, last segment here, Chip. Are you ready for what we call Tyler's Five? And it's sure. just five random sure. questions that have okay. absolutely nothing to do with anything. So it's more great. like a get to know you. So okay, great. Sure. First question: If you could visit one place you've never been before, where would that be? Uh, one place that I've never been before that I'd like to visit. Uh, let's see. Saint Petersburg, Russia, is one of them. Uh, Turkey is another one of them. I know you can only give one, but I'm going to give several. And I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to drive the Autobahn as fast as I possibly could. Those sound, uh, those sound fun. Hopefully you'll get a chance to do that at some point. Uh, the second question I have to ask, you mentioned uh, being in Florida. Obviously I'm in Florida too. So being in Florida, Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic Ocean? Uh, well, I live close to the Atlantic Ocean, so uh, I'll say that. But uh, you can't go wrong either way. Sanibel Island in that area is awesome. And for me, uh, heaven on earth would be Key West. If I could find a way to get there more often, that would be outstanding. I haven't made it down there yet, but it's definitely on my list. Key West and then St. Augustine, I've heard is really neat area, like a lot of history. So I'm hoping, you know, I just moved down here in October. So I'm hoping, you know, get there, get over. I've heard Daytona. I've been to Daytona once, but would like to get back to that beach. Uh, so there's just so much to do down here. So I'll definitely, uh, hopefully Key West, I can also try at some point. It, it's, a, it's a winner. It's great. All right. Third question. So you are in Chicago, right? And you have to choose one or the other for a meal. Are you going to go get a Chicago-style pizza or Chicago-style Italian beef? I'm going to Harry Carey's. I'm not doing either one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's hey, Fair enough. Fair enough. I uh, spent many uh, many nights, many, many, uh, much time and 
some money at Harry Carey's back in my day. I lived uh, right across the street uh, from Water Tower Place at the Loyola downtown campus. So it was an easy, nice, nice little trek over there. And then uh, I used to hang out in the 95th floor observatory at the John Hancock building and then head over to Harry Harry Carey's. And then they also have that Chicago Sports Museum. So spent spent a lot of time in there. So it's definitely a, a great setup. And then uh, I'm going to give Harry Carey some free advertising here. If you want to get into the Chicago Sports Museum and not pay, go uh, have a drink or eat at Harry Carey's, and they'll give you a voucher to go over to the Chicago Sports Museum. Perfect. It, it makes Perfect. for a makes for a great a uh, great afternoon. Uh, fourth question here: favorite baseball movie? Favorite baseball movie? Uh, let's see. I I guess I'm kind of a sappy romantic. I love The Natural. I I know it's hokey as can be, but uh, love Kim Basinger. Uh, Robert Redford was terrific. Uh, Bull Durham is also on that list, um, but I, if if I had to if I had to pick one where I think is um, you know quintessential what we all went through in, in baseball, the original Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau and Tatum O'Neill, uh, fantastic movie, great 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 uh, you know coming of age movie and growing up and growing old and all of that. Uh, love the Bad News Bears, absolutely love it. I just saw the original. Uh what was it about two weeks ago? And yes, it was uh, definitely a lot different than the, I guess what they call the second version of the bad news bears. I liked it. So uh, good pick for you. It's a beauty. Fifth question. Last question here. Uh, Chip, if you could only listen to one song the rest of your life, what song would it be? Uh, America, the beautiful. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, I think we, you know, (laughs) You know, we've got a lot going on in our country, uh, and I think all of us should sit back and recognize just how fortunate we are to live in a place as diverse as this, as beautiful as this, as economically successful as this. Uh, it sure as hell is not a perfect place. Nothing is. But uh, if you've ever had a chance to travel anywhere around the world, everybody in the world wants to come here for a reason. I think all of us who are here sometimes take that for granted. So. Uh, America the Beautiful. I try to look at uh, uh, all the gorgeous things that we are here. Marcus Aurelius' advice was look for the things of beauty in the, in the world. And uh, you mentioned Florida. Uh, that's certainly one of them. But all 50 states have those gorgeous places that I think if we just stopped and took stock of where we are and how fortunate we are, no matter our circumstance, uh, I think we'd all be a whole lot better for it. For sure. And, and appreciate you uh, sharing that and being on the podcast, Chip. I know uh, I know we had uh, some technical difficulties there getting this set up, and I apologize for that. But it's really awesome to talk to you, Chip, and and uh, really appreciate your insight. And um, outside of the Cubs, obviously, I'm gonna say go Cubs, but uh, go Braves. And I really do. If if the Cubs aren't in, I, I'll pull for the Braves for you, Tyler. I appreciate that, man. All the best. Good luck with the podcast, and uh, you enjoy the baseball season. Baseball's back, and uh, can't wait to start playing games for real here in the next week or so. Chip Carey, everyone.